Well, people of God in Christ, uh, in this sermon series on Romans, we have uh, already twice dealt with um, grief in the Christian life. Uh, We have pointed out that while faith in Christ brings great joy to the believer, I trust you know that, yet faith in Christ also brings a grief that is unique to the Christian life. And so we can easily avoid this grief by turning back from, from following Christ and leaving off our faith in Him. But then we lose the joy of believing as well. The joy of the Christian life is, is knowing that Christ is my Savior, that my sins are forgiven, that I have the righteousness of Christ to my credit, and that I have the hope of resurrection unto life, even eternal life in a fully consummated new creation. But along with the joy of the Christian life is indeed a grief that we are called to bear. First, in Romans 7, it was the grief that comes from our struggle with the flesh and and our falling to temptation all too often. In Romans 7.21, Paul writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So like Paul, as, as Christians, as those who believe in Christ and love Christ, and desire to honor Christ by our obedience, we delight in the law of God. So that as Christians, we grieve our sin. And we say with Paul, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But at the same time, we have, we have the joy to answer as Paul does, Thanks be to God. God will one day deliver me from this struggle and this grief through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Second, in Romans 8.18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So once again, Paul writes of grief and, and joy together, and he does so on purpose in order to encourage us to persevere through the grief by way of the promise of glory. And what is the grief here? Here it is the more general grief of all people, all who, who, uh, who live with the grave awaiting us. But also it's the, it's the unique grief of living in opposition to the world. Uh, the persecution that Jesus himself uh, prepared his disciples to experience. And once again, uh, one flip of the switch, we might say, uh, by turning back like, like Peter uh, at the trial of Jesus, and all is well again. The suffering is over, the grief is gone if we turn back from following Christ. But along with the grief goes the joy for the glory that is to be revealed in us if we turn back from following Christ. But now for a third time. The Apostle Paul addresses the inherent, unique grief of the Christian life. It's the grief we feel when we believe while others do not. 
especially when those others are family members, friends, loved ones who by their unbelief remain apart from Christ and still in their sin. To be a Christian is to acknowledge the guilt of sin and the coming judgment of God for sin. So that while there is joy in the Christian's own deliverance by faith, is there not a grief within us for those who do not believe and are not yet saved by Christ? So here's the first point, grief for unbelief. And this could apply even to us as believers, because there remains in in all believers a degree of unbelief. It, It often comes in the form of the doubts that come, and they swirl in our minds, uh, disrupting the the joy and the peace that that we have in Christ. Each of us should uh, learn to pray each day, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. There was that day when when a man brought to Jesus his son, possessed by a demon. The man said to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus answered, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. In Romans 9, the grief is the unbelief, however, of others especially those whom we love most dearly. Uh, Paul writes in verse 1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. At first, it seems curious that, that Paul, at this point, turns, to, turns his thoughts to the unbelief of his own people. Why? Why now? Well, I think it's because he has just written of the great joy of faith in Christ. Have, have you ever had an, an experience so wonderful that you wished so much that some person in your life could be there to experience it with you? Romans 8 is a, is a chapter of exaltation and and jubilation. With our faith in Christ, we have escaped all condemnation before God. As believers, we have God as our Father, even crying, Abba, Father. By our faith in Christ, how amazing that we have the hope of resurrection and eternal life and the assurance that even now the Spirit of God within us is interceding for us. In the end, if God is for us, who can be against us? Because nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so the blessings that come by faith are so exalted, they are, they are so glorious, that it, it, it can't help but make Paul think of those who remain without faith. And so without Christ... And so without all the glorious benefits that are found in Christ. Perhaps now we can see better how the joy of the Christian must also bring grief. Here's a point to learn again that contrary emotions 
are not mutually exclusive. When we are unhappy, we want instead to be happy. But we really need to learn to be happy even as we are unhappy. This is what Paul means in, in Philippians when he, uh, he calls us to rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't mean quit being unhappy, because how do you tell someone who is suffering to just, just quit suffering? Suffering makes us unhappy. It's, it, but by its very definition, suffering is unhappiness. But even if the suffering doesn't go away and, and we remain unhappy in our suffering, yet we can rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice in Christ and, and in the gospel of our, of our salvation in the same way. The Christian life is lived with joy, but at the very same time, with grief. In fact, the greater our joy, the more we exalt in, in Christ and, and all the glorious benefits that are found in Him, well, the greater will be our grief. For those who have not yet believed. Another curious thing is the kind of oath that Paul takes as he begins to speak of his grief. He writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And only then does he refer to his great sorrow and unceasing anguish for the unbelief of his own people. We can almost see him standing there with his right hand raised and, and saying, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Well, the reason for Paul's emphasis on telling the truth is because in his letter to the church at Rome, he has already been very critical of his own people. And we will see that he continues in Romans to point out the great sin and foolishness of their unbelief. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't still love his people. It's like the mother who watches her child grow up and, and then do such utterly foolish things, things that, that the child should know better than to do. So the mother has a choice either change her beliefs to fit those of her child or stand firm out of love for her foolish child. This is what Paul is doing. He is assuring his readers that he certainly is not turning his back on his own people, even as he is obligated by his commitment to the truth to point out their foolishness. And we are in the same position. Is it not a great temptation when we see our unbelieving loved ones to waver on the truth of God's word? Maybe it's true for me, but not necessarily for them. Maybe Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, except for my unbelieving relative or friend whom I love so dearly. But we can't do that. This is why our Lord himself said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now there is hyperbole here in the word hate. 
Hyperbole is, is a kind of intentional exaggeration by which to make the point all the more clear and powerful. It's like when a, it's like when a football coach says to his team, let's go out there tonight and kill them. Is he looking for his players to commit murder? No, no, but it carries more force to say, let's go out there and kill them, than to say, now boys, uh, in the game tonight, let's make sure that we score at least one more point than our opponents do. Jesus is making a point. He is teaching something very important, that our love for family even must not turn us aside from following him. It won't be easy. It isn't easy. But that's why Jesus includes the call to hate even one's own life. And so calls us to take up our cross and to count the cost as we set out to live the Christian life. And so what does Paul do next? Where does he go from here? Next, he, he acknowledges the glory of the Old Covenant. He writes of his own people, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Paul is pointing out, indeed, what, what fools his own people truly are. So he confesses his love for his own people. He even thinks, well, what if, what if he might be a kind of savior to them, cut off for their sakes? But he is not willing to go easy on them. They really should know better. Their own scriptures should lead them to the truth that Jesus of Nazareth was and is their Messiah, their Christ, their Savior. In one sense, Paul is saying that, uh, that they are so close and yet so far away. And here we can be reminded that when the apostles preached the gospel in the, in the earliest days, they, they didn't say, now, now please open your Bibles and turn to the gospel of Luke. Instead, the only scriptures they had to preach were the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And here's the thing, that that's all they needed in order to preach the gospel. Because Christ had come in fulfillment of all that is spoken about him in the Hebrew scriptures. Remember what it says in, in Luke 24. I can say that to you. Remember what it says in Luke 24 about Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. And it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the resurrected Jesus interpreted to them all in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so not just those two disciples, but all the, all the apostles came to see what we must see, that the Hebrew Scriptures are about Jesus. There's a saying or a, a motto, we might call it, that says, Jesus on every page. Whenever, wherever we open our Bibles, we should be ready and eager to learn about our Lord, more about the Savior 
whom we love. Isn't it interesting how, how popular stories and movies are today when they are about ancient mysteries, uh, how riches are, are hid in, in ancient mountains, and how truth is, is hid in ancient documents. Uh, a great treasure is found deep under a mountain, and, and these ancient runes will, will show the way to find the treasure and take possession of it. But that theme, that premise to the story, is, is what the Christian faith is. Only Christ is the one who is worthy to open the seals and to make known the mystery of the Scriptures. So if we love such stories in our own day, perhaps we are like a a man married to a beautiful woman who ignores her beauty and goes off to be with some other woman. If we want mystery and intrigue, then let's read our Bibles. Learn to look for Christ on every page. Look for the pictures of Christ painted in the, in the Old Testament. Pay attention to the ancient prophecies and trace them forward to the coming of Christ. Let the apostles be the sages who, on behalf of Christ and by the Holy Spirit, who, who open the mysteries and make known the glories. Read the modern stories that are so popular today, but recognize that those stories are knockoffs the original story of mysteries revealed is the story of the Bible. Unless we are from Jewish ethnicity, what Paul says of his people is not necessarily true of our loved ones. But remember what Paul taught in Romans 1, that the wrath of God is revealed. The coming judgment of God is, is not a hidden mystery. And what can be known about God is plain to all people of earth simply by creation itself. And when the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of a, of a sinner to see in Christ the, the God of holiness and power and grace, so our eyes are also open to see God in all that He has made. It's not just a tree anymore. It's not just a mountain anymore as we are brought to faith in Christ We see God Himself by way of what He has made. We see that God is revealed in creation and again in the Word of God. And does it not grieve us that these things cannot be seen by those whom we love? As it should, as it must, it grieves us throughout our Christian lives. And yet, this is what we must expect, because the third point is children of the promise. Paul was willing to explain what was happening within his own people when some of them believed, but others would not believe. He writes in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. This is a similar point to one Paul made earlier when Paul, when Paul taught the weakness of the law of God to save sinners. He was careful to clarify that it's not the law's fault. It's not that the law of God is deficient, but only that the law of God was given by God not to save sinners, but to show us our sinfulness and our weakness. In other words, the Ten Commandments are not your salvation 
but not because of some failure in the, in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, were not intended to save the sinner, except by conv- convicting the sinner and leading the sinner to Christ and to His cross for His or her salvation. And so in a similar way, Paul writes in verse 6, It is not as though the word of God has failed. And why? Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Paul here uses the story of Abraham and and Isaac as an illustration. uh, But it's obviously not a a made-up illustration, but one drawn from those ancient Hebrew scriptures. Here's a clue. Here's a mystery now revealed in Christ and, and revealed by the spread of the gospel in Paul's own day. Remember that Abraham and Sarah had no children because Sarah was barren. God had given her no children throughout her life until she was far too old to have children. Decades past menopause, God gave a son, Isaac, to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah was a miracle mother, and Isaac was a miracle baby. And God did it this way so that it would be very obvious and very clear as a work by his hand. And Paul's point is that God was the same in his day, and we can be sure that God is the same in our day. Isaac was a child of God brought into this world in the same way that believers are brought to faith in Christ today by the powerful, miraculous work of God. As a result of the miraculous birth of Isaac, Isaac became one of the patriarchs, one of the ancient Jewish fathers. But even more, the people of Israel, descended from both Abraham and Isaac, became a miracle people, a people made by God. Think of Psalm 100, in which Israel sang, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And not we ourselves. God didn't find a people and having found them, then took them as his own. God made a people for himself. He chose one man, Abraham, who at the time God chose him was a, was a pagan man, a worshiper of, of false gods. So clearly for no reason in Abraham, God chose him, and by the miraculous birth of Isaac, God made a people for himself. But we sing Psalm 100 too, don't we? And why? Because God is the same today. The story of Isaac's birth shows us how God still works today. He doesn't take sinners to be his people as they believe in him. Instead, he makes sinners, he recreates them to be his own. We too can sing and should sing, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. And here's the joy and the comfort of knowing this, to know that we are his people 
and the sheep of his pasture. The second illustration, which is a, a second early picture of how God works, is the story of the sons of Isaac. To Isaac were born twins, Jacob and Esau. It's curious that we say it that way, Jacob and Esau, because Esau was the older. The older usually gets named first. I have, a, I have an older brother. And when people used to refer to us, they said, Doug and Steve. And it didn't offend me. Although now that I think about it. So why Jacob and Esau? Because although Jacob was the younger, God chose him to be the recipient of the covenant that he first made with Grandpa Abraham. From Abraham, God's gracious promises for a coming Savior passed to Isaac, the miracle child. From Isaac, the covenant promises of God passed to Jacob, the second born. And that was even more significant then than it might seem today in our culture. But the point was to demonstrate that it's God who chooses according to his sovereign grace. God is not forced by culture. He is not confined by ethnicity. He is not obligated by anyone or anything to do the things that he does. That's what it means that he is sovereign, as we say. He is free of of any higher power or authority that would determine what he does, including who he saves. So here's what Paul learned from this ancient mystery now revealed to him. And and here's what he means to teach us in verse 11, that God acted in this way with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, and he still acts in this way today in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls Two stories, two ancient mysteries revealed, but the same lesson to be learned. God is sovereign in his grace. Here is only the introduction to this teaching of God's word, and it is, uh, the, it is the teaching of God's word and not just, uh, not just from the Apostle Paul. But for this morning, let's just end with this application to bring us uh, back to where we started. What about our, our, our unsaved loved ones for whom we grieve? Uh, some will want to say that, that God's sovereign grace only deepens our grief. God's sovereign grace only deepens our grief. When actually God's sovereign grace should give us much hope and and really the only hope that can be found for those who have yet to believe in Christ. If you and I are believers in Christ by way of a miracle of God, then there is hope for anyone in this world. There is hope for others by way of the same miracle. But, But if you and I are believers by Christ, believers in Christ by way of the work of God in us through Christ, then there is hope that God will do the same work in the hearts of those whom we love. And so what 
can we do? What must we do? We, we pray. We witness. As much as we can, we, we bring God's word to bear upon the hearts of those who have yet to believe. We don't know what will happen in the end, and that's our grief. But we know what has happened to us. And we know that God is the God who saves sinners. He saved us. He can certainly save others too. So let's pray. Uh, Let's live before others in, in such a way as to be winsome and to be encouraging to them, encouraging them toward faith. Let us speak of Christ and the gospel as we have opportunity. And let us always hold out hope, looking to God by His sovereign grace to save those whom we love. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is our grief to receive from your hand through Christ such a glorious salvation and yet to see others turn away. So we do pray for them, O Lord, that you would do that great work in their hearts as you have done in us to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. We pray for ourselves that you would bless us to be uh, helpful and winsome to others. Use us, O Lord, to save our loved ones. But if not us, O Lord, bring others into their lives, others who would also witness to them and bring your word to bear upon their hearts that faith might be found there and that they might believe and find what we have found, the, the glorious promises of the gospel. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.